Matthew chapter 26 in your Bible, verses 17 through 30. Celebrating the Lord's Supper. You could um, call it, what is communion? And so if you've ever wondered what communion is, exactly what we're doing, why we're doing it, uh, you'll be uh, pleased by today's message. You'll find out exactly uh, what we're doing when we celebrate uh, communion together. Now, you remember last time we were taken in by the heart of a worshiper. Her, uh, Mary poured out her precious ointment on Jesus uh, to anoint him for his burial. Today, with the cross just before him, Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples. Now, communion and the Lord's Supper are synonymous terms. He's going to initiate the Lord's Supper with them during this Passover meal. Now, communion or the Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance. It's a time to remember that Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice in our place so that we could experience the forgiveness of our sins. Let's take a moment and let's go to Jerusalem around 30 AD and we'll look into the first communion. Verse 17 says, Now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word today, Lord, we ask that you would make the book live to us, that you would show us more about who you are, that you would show us who we are, Lord, that you would show us our need for you, our need for our Savior. Lord, help our hearts and our wandering thoughts to be directed to you, the most important person in our lives. So Lord, we ask your help from your Holy Spirit to understand and to grow and to be changed and shaped by the teaching of your word here today, to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now this is a springtime festival that the Israelites celebrated annually in conjunction with the Passover. Unleavened bread, it's a flat, round, quick baking bread made from flour and water with no leavening agent in it. It has no yeast in it to make it rise. The Israelites ate unleavened bread as part of the Passover meal and the week-long feast that followed called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, and they, so they would eat unleavened bread for seven days. This annual festival, which began with Passover on the 14th day of Abib, later called Nisan, served as a reminder of God's rescue of his people from the slavery that they were in in Egypt. When they left Egypt, you remember they did so so quickly that they didn't have time for their bread to leaven. And so this Feast of Unleavened Bread is commemorating that moment and that, that reality. It helped them year by year to praise the Lord and thank him that he took them out from the harsh control of Pharaoh in Egypt. The disciples asked Jesus, where would you like us to go and prepare the Passover? Now, they're going to go prepare the Passover because the disciples and Jesus are Jews. I don't know if 
maybe you didn't know that. There was a, for a while, I didn't understand that. They were faithful Jews, so they would celebrate the Passover each year. And it was what's known as a pilgrim's feast. So if you were a Jew within a reasonable amount of proximity to Jerusalem, you were commanded by law to come to Jerusalem and party. (laughs) Isn't that pretty cool, though, by the way? Here's an aside. God wrote into his law parties. You ever think of that? (laughs) The God that you and I serve here today likes it when we get together and party. Now, don't get me wrong. Maybe not the sort of partying that some of you used to do before Christ. I'm not talking about that. He wants you to party, uh, not to escape life, but to celebrate life. And so they come and uh, ask Jesus, where would you like us to go prepare the Passover? Now, the Passover, as you know a little bit from last time, if you need more information, you can listen to last week's sermon. Uh, but it's a celebration of God's deliverance from Israel, also uh, of Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And Passover celebrates the fact that on the last plague, you remember the 10 plagues in Egypt, the last one, God said, I'm going to kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Heavy duty. But the angel of death that's going to go and do this will pass over homes that have blood painted on the doorpost of a spotless, perfect lamb. And so this happens thousands of years before the cross, but this is what the Passover um, is all about. And so they would remember each year that the angel of death passed over the homes that were painted with the blood of the lamb. What happened at a Passover celebration, you might wonder? Well... The celebration of Passover supper in the time of Christ was a little bit different than it was at its um, institution initially. The Jews would come together that were going to celebrate, and the first cup of wine would be filled uh, for everyone. And the leader, there would be a leader of this Passover festival, and they'd pronounce a blessing, and then after that, some wine would be uh, drank by everybody. Then what would happen next is what's called the bitter herbs would be brought out. And these are just herbs uh, that symbolize, they're the bitter herbs because they symbolize the harsh treatment that Israel went through uh, during this slavery. So the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread, and then a vinegar and water um, mixture would come out uh, and they would dip in there. And then the flesh of another voluntary um, peace offering of of a different animal, not the Passover lamb, would be brought out and all these things would come out at this time. Then the third thing that would happen is when all these items were placed on the table, the head of the family or the leader of the feast would take a portion of these bitter herbs uh, in his hand and dip it in the vinegar and water. Uh, And then after thanking God for the fruits of the earth, they would eat a small portion of it uh, and, and give a similar portion out to everybody at the table. And they were remembering God's you know, deliverance, and, but the harsh treatment with the bitter herbs uh, that they endured. Then the unleavened bread was distributed, and then the Passover lamb would be placed on the table at that time in front of the head of the family. At this time, a second cup of wine was given, and this is in accordance with a uh, verse in Exodus chapter 12. And then the first part of the Hillel hymn, praising uh, God, um, from Psalm 113 and 114 would be saying. We read Psalm 113 before we got started today for this reason. So then another blessing would follow that. Number the, the five, the fifth thing that would happen then, after the singing, the unleavened bread and bitter herbs dipped in vinegar and water were eaten. Then the flesh of the peace offering was eaten. And then the Passover lamb was eaten. At that point, a third cup of wine was poured out and drank, as well as a fourth After the fourth cup, 
The rest of the Hillel was sung, which is Psalm uh, 115 uh, through 118. So that's what you can do for your homework is when you go home today, read Psalm 113 all the way through 118, and you'll know that that's what was being sung during this Passover festival. Verse 18 says, Go into the city to see a certain man, and tell him that you're going to keep the Passover at his house, that it's time. Now, Luke tells us that these disciples were Peter and John. And so they go into this town. They go into the town and they tell a man, a certain man, that they're going to have Passover at his house. Now, this was a common practice for those that were traveling to Israel at this time. Remember I said that all the Jews that were around would travel into Israel for the Passover. So they would come and it was common practice that they'd be received uh, by people in the, in the city uh, as brothers and sisters. And, and they would give them their apartments or their places to celebrate the Passover together. So I always thought it was interesting. Like Jesus says, go talk to this guy and tell him, hey, we're coming over to your house, man. We're going we're gonna to have Passover there. But that was the common practice to let pilgrims into your home to celebrate the Passover. And then what they would do in return is the pilgrims would give the homeowner uh, you know, the, the skin from the Passover lamb and the different utensils used in the in the uh, Seder, in the festival. So the disciples go, verse 19, and did as Jesus directed them. Now, I almost hopped right over this verse. Do you see that, verse 19? I almost hopped right over it, but I thought it was good to bring it out that the disciples did as Jesus directed them. It's an interesting thing today that the church needs to be reminded that disciples do what Jesus directs them. It might seem completely obvious. You read right over that and you say, yeah, of course, Jesus' disciples did as he asked them to do. But I think it's a good reminder for the church today that somehow the church has lost sight of the fact that what Jesus writes in his word to us, he means for us to do it. And his disciples, as true disciples did, they did as Jesus directed him. They found the man just as Jesus said, now, other writers tell us that this apartment that they used was in an upper room. Now, here's a fun fact. When we first moved to this building, we used to be in another building on the north end of town, and we didn't know where we were going to go for the longest time. And God opened this place up, and we were teaching through the Gospel of Mark at the time. The first sermon we had in here, we were at this place in the Gospel of Mark, and it was about being with the disciples in the upper room. And we, we were almost, I mean, we were like, Whoa, God, you're so good. Just the timing of it, because you guys know how we do it. We just go verse by verse, and however it ends up on whatever day, it ends up. Kind of like today, we're talking about the Lord's Supper and celebrating the Lord's Supper. We didn't plan this, right? But the first Sunday we were here was an upper room, uh, the upper room message. Pretty interesting. So that afternoon, the two disciples, Peter and John, they go to the temple with the Passover lamb after they've got the place procured, and the lamb then would be killed at the temple, a priest would collect the blood from the lamb in a gold or silver uh, bowl, and then that priest would pass it to the next priest and the next priest and the next priest, and they would have a line, kind of like, you know, the firemen, that, how they used to put out fires, and they would carry the blood all the way to the altar. You got to remember at this time, there were thousands upon thousands of people making sacrifices at the temples. This isn't just like, uh, you know, one priest in the temple. This is like a whole thing set up uh, to handle this. So, Peter and John take the Passover lamb there. It's killed. The blood is taken and poured on the altar. The lamb was then specifically cut and the entrails removed to be burned on the altar with incense. 
and the priest would perform the ritual as prescribed by the law. Now, at dark, the lamb would be roasted, and then Peter and John would take the lamb, and they would take the bitter herbs, the unleavened uh, bread, the sauce, and everything, and they would go to the Passover uh, in this guy's upper room. Now, when evening had come, see, that was like real pleasant, and now this, it's kind of like the, the plot turns into something that's interesting to me how something so beautiful and something so bad can be happening at the same time. Verse 20, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you have said it. He sits down with the twelve. Actually, the verb translated sat down in Greek actually means to lie down. That's significant for it. Let me show you a picture. I'll show you why this is significant. Um, you might have to skip ahead a few slides there to see the first picture. Maybe go to the picture right before that or after that. <laughs> I can't remember which one is which. Is that the, there? So this picture is actually probably inaccurate uh, because uh, actually the verb sat down means to lay down. Now, in this culture, uh, it was different than how we eat. They ate you know, differently than how we eat in Mason City, Iowa today. Uh, they would actually lay down on little couches around a table with their feet pointing away from the table. Uh, they would recline on their left elbow and then they would eat with their right hand and their, you know, their feet would be going away and they're all you know, centered around this table. So that old painting that you see of the Last Supper, unfortunately, is inaccurate. But that's a lot. A lot of Christian relics are inaccurate. A lot of Christmas stuff is totally inaccurate, um, by the way. But that's another subject. So there had been, we know from other gospel accounts, that there had been jockeying for position. In other words, there had been a discussion during this time about who would be the greatest you remember that from the other gospel accounts of this in the upper room? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? You can go to that other picture if you would, Tyler. This one's probably more accurate. See how they're laying, how the guy's laying on the bed there. This uh, was all going on on this night in the upper room, arguing who's the greatest and this and that. And as they're arguing who's the greatest, we know from John's gospel, chapter 12, we know that in that context, while they're saying, well, I'm better than you and I'm better than you. I'm Jesus' right-hand man. Well, I'm his left-hand man. Jesus got down then at that point and he washed their feet to teach them a lesson about what true greatness really is, right? That's all going on in here. Matthew doesn't comment on any of that, but if you read John's gospel, you'll understand. He says in this context, one of you will betray me. Now, that's an unpleasant thing to bring up at the feast, and verse 22 says that they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? I want you to note their reaction carefully because we're going to come back and talk about this in a second. Place a thumbtack here. 
because this is important. Verse 23 said, it's he who dipped his hand with me. I think what probably made this even tougher for Jesus is this is one of his friends. Psalm 41 verse 9 says, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It's a prophetic psalm describing the betrayal of Judas, of Jesus by Judas. I can't imagine what, you know, the the character that Jesus has that he's able to like, not just like punch this guy, (laughs) you know what I mean? But boy, oh boy, he's singing songs, he's celebrating to the Lord. And he's dipping, having this, and the Jews looked at eating together as completely just the most personal, personal thing that you could do. And he says, it's the one who dipped his hand with me. I want to say this to you today. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. And maybe you do too. And I want to encourage you that if you've ever felt something like this, if you haven't, you probably will because humans fail but you can go to Jesus with this because he knows firsthand what it's like to be betrayed by somebody that's close to him. Son of man goes just as it is written of him, verse 24, but woe to that man. Amazing passage describing the sovereignty of God. Like this is the plan, but yet this man has the ability to do this or, don't, or not do it. Amazing. Judah says to him, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus says, you've said it. Now, this is one of the biggest blown opportunities of all time right here. Jesus is graciously laying this out for Judas that he might repent. Jesus is bringing his word forward so it might convict the conscience of the sinner and that the sinner might churn. But the sinner misses the opportunity to churn when he's convicted by Jesus' word. Now, I want you to look at verse 22, please, again. I want you to notice two things, and if you'd like to highlight them in your Bible, I think it'd be good. Exceedingly sorrowful, number one, and number two, is it I? This is the reaction of the disciples to Jesus' word that there's sin in the camp. Somebody's going to betray me. And the genuine disciples here, this is their reaction to Jesus saying that there's sin in the church, if you will. Exceedingly sorrowful, and is it I? Exceedingly sorrowful. This is something that by and large is missing in the church of Jesus Christ in 2022. Today, people are far more concerned about offending man, slighting themselves, than they are offending Jesus Christ. And just the mention that sin might be, that sin is in the camp, they're exceedingly sorrowful because they understand that sin is breaking God's laws. When you and I sin, it's not just that we make a mistake. It's not just that I'm not as bad as the person sitting next to me. When you sin, when I sin, It's breaking God's law. It's a personal affront to God. And so when Jesus says there's sin in the camp, these disciples become exceedingly sorrowful. Would to God that there would be more of that in the life of the Christian. I do not want to offend my master. Breaks my heart. I hate my sin. Have you ever come to that point? Have you come to that point? 
to where when God, through the teaching of his word, maybe you're here on Sunday and you go through a sermon and God steps on your toes or something like this, or you're reading in your daily Bible reading, God points out a sin in your life. How does your reaction to that? Is it, are you exceedingly sorrowful? How about the next thing where it says, is it I? Most of us do this. And I have to commend the disciples because they didn't say, is it him? (laughs) Because that's what most people do. They get convicted by the Bible. And they say, you know what? My cousin should have heard this message. It's somebody else. But the disciples, they should be commended for their self-awareness, for their humility. When Jesus says there's sin in the camp, they say, is it me? There's not enough of that in the church today, of people daily getting before the Lord in prayer and in the word and saying, is it me? There's not enough of this. There's a lot of, is it you? I'm sure it's you. I'm sure it couldn't be me. They're to be commended for this. These disciples were wise enough to understand that they don't even understand what's going on in their own heart. The Bible tells us that the human heart is wickedly sick and deceitful, and who can know it? And the psalmist says, search me and try me, Lord. He's saying that because he knows that there's, he doesn't even know what's going on in his own heart. Have you ever been there? You've been to that point to where you look at the actions in your life and the words that come from your mouth and you say, where is this coming from? I don't even know my own heart. I'm sick. Lord, is it I? Am I the one with the problem? Show me myself that I might get right with you that I might call out for mercy. God points your sin out in your life so you'll come to him and you'll ask for forgiveness and cleansing. Not to shame you, not to beat you up, not to kill you. He comes to you and points your sin out so you'll get right with him, so you'll call out to him for forgiveness and mercy and cleansing and you'll get the stuff out of your life so you can live the full abundant life that he's called you to. He cares about you. That's why he wants to deal with these things in our lives. Exceedingly sorrowful in Isidai, verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed and broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What we have here is the practice of communion or the Lord's Supper, sometimes referred to as the Eucharist. Now, get the setting. For hundreds upon hundreds of years, Israelites have celebrated the Passover the different elements representing elements from Israel's past. And they would be expecting things to continue as they always did. As they were eating. So Jesus would have already given thanks and they would have drank from a cup together. The bitter herbs would have been introduced, symbolizing the rigorous life in Egypt. Jesus had introduced the unleavened bread, the lamb which had been killed and roasted according to the instructions. Jesus ate the bitter herbs, the others followed suit. Jesus mixed the wine and 
water for the second cup. They sang the Hillel, Psalm 113, 114. They drank from the cup again. Jesus ceremonially washes his hands. He takes two cakes of bread, goes through the ceremony of breaking one and laying it on the other, blessing the bread, wrapping the broken bread with herbs, dipping it in the juices of the roasted lamb and eating the meat. And the rest joined him. And then probably at this point, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it. Now, he takes the unleavened bread, says a blessing, and he begins to break it, giving some pieces to his disciples. And then he said something that would have been totally out of place. Take, eat, this is my body. This statement had no place in the Passover. He's likening the bread to his body. Now, many times in scriptures, Jesus likens himself to an object, right? Can you guys think of any? He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. I am the gate to the sheepfold. I am the bread of life. Many places Jesus likens himself to an object, and so it's a symbol. And so when he says, take, this is my body, most likely he's making a symbol. He's, he's saying this is a symbol of remembrance, these words would have literally, literally have been shocking. It would have been, um, you know, more and more amazing from this point on. Then he took the cup, verse 27, gave thanks, and he says, drink from it, all of you. This probably would have been in place of the third cup at the Passover, somewhere in that area. Now, they would have understood our master is doing something completely different with a religious festival that we've been keeping faithfully for all of our lives and for all the lives of Israel. They would have known Jesus is doing something different. The plain language of the text here shows that this is a symbol, that this is not transubstantiation as the Catholics uh, teach. It's not consubstantiation as Luther thought. You're familiar with transubstantiation, that the actual you know, juice and bread is the actual real body of Christ. And in the mass, he's like re-sacrificed over and over again. That doesn't come from the uh, scriptures. Um, the plain reading of the scriptures would lean towards its a symbol. Um, Luther, however, uh, in his break from the Catholic Church, didn't really break that far in some practice. Uh, and he taught consubstantiation so that the bread and the wine became the body of Christ when the priests or the you know, the leader um, invoked it. Then you had guys like Calvin, who also believed in sort of a mystical sense of the whole communion. Then you had another guy, another reformer by the name of Zwingli that taught that it was more of a symbolic thing. And that's the, um, what I believe you get from the plain reading of the text. Now, we don't want to make the mistake that a lot of Protestants do. And they say, it's just a symbol that word just is not, it doesn't belong in that sentence. It's not just anything. It's, a, it's an incredibly powerful symbol that represents um, so much to us. This is how we remember what Jesus did for us. As we eat the bread, we first understand that we are to take it. Notice he said, take and eat. That means it has to be a willing thing and you have to do it. Nobody can take communion for you, can they? They can drag you to church and try to force you to do it, but 
as far as what Jesus says here, you need to take this. You need to take Jesus into your life personally. You don't get into heaven because your parents are Christians. You don't get into heaven because your uncle's a Christian, because your grandma was. You don't get into heaven because you were born in, you know, what people say is a Christian nation. You need to take this in for yourself. He says, take and eat. Nothing is forced upon us. Eating, this is essential for life. Remember, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Then we remember how Jesus was crucified, how he was beaten with stripes, how his side was pierced with a spear for our redemption. And as we drink the cup, we should remember that his blood, his life was poured out on the cross for us. This brings up a good question. Have you taken Jesus into your life? I don't mean do you go to church on Sunday. Have you taken Jesus into your life? Are you filled with him? Are you taking in his word? Are you communing with him? Are you filled with his Holy Spirit? Do you have a personal relationship with the living Christ today? This is my blood of the new covenant. Covenant is an important word in scriptures. There are many covenants that God made with people. This is another part of your homework. If you'd like to accept it, you can do a search on the covenants in the Bible. The old covenant is the Mosaic covenant. And in this passage, until now, that Mosaic covenant was in effect with God's people the Jews. In a nutshell, the old covenant said, keep the law or die. If you will do what God says in the Ten Commandments and all the other 600 other commandments in the Old Testament, if you will do those, God will bless you. If you don't, he will curse you. Do these or die. If you break one, you've broken them all dead. Now, since nobody can keep them, as we all know, God then made the sacrificial system where animals would be brought to be sacrificed at the temple or the tabernacle way back, and they would be sacrificed ritualistically. And what would happen then is that blood sacrifice would be a temporary kofar or a temporary covering over sin. The book of Hebrews tells us it was temporary. It had to be offered over and over again, reminds us of that fact. And so God made the Levitical priesthood. And so this is what the animal sacrifice is all about, is it's blood being sacrificed as a payment, as a temporary payment or a covering for the sin of the people. That covenant was in effect until right here. Now, what Jesus says is, this is my blood of the new covenant. Now, it fits that the new covenant would be sealed with blood as the old covenant was sealed with blood. Let me read to you Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. This is when the covenant was being made with the people. Exodus 24, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant, Moses, and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So everything in the law, we'll do it. Moses says, you'll do it? We'll do it. Okay, sprinkles blood on them, done deal. 
Mosaic Covenant goes all the way thousands of years later to this point right here when Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. The old is obsolete. Here's a new way that man comes to God. The new covenant concerns an inner transformation that cleanses us from all sin. You can read about it in Jeremiah. First, uh, 34 of Jeremiah 31 says, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no, no more. He's describing the new covenant. This new covenant, part of it, God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Part of this new covenant says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This new covenant is where you and I now, man can come to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not through the sacrifice of bulls and goats and animals. Not through obedience to the law. We come now to God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a big deal. You know, I want to pull out an application here for a second that you really should appreciate the new covenant. Because let me put it to you like this. If I, if I said, look, you keep hundreds of laws or die. You can't do it, right? Okay, so what I need you to do is keep bringing these animals to be sacrificed over and over and over again. You can't come near God. You can't have closeness with God. You can't have fellowship with God. And you are under the curse of God because you're breaking God's commandments. Now, let me make you a different offer. You can come to God by trusting in what his son did at the cross and believing in that. And you can have intimacy with God. You can come directly to his throne room. You can be adopted into his family. You can be forgiven of all of your sins through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, you see, the old covenant had a lot to do with you, didn't it? You do this or else. The new covenant has to do with Jesus, right? Now, if you understand, that's really good news. If I make a deal with God and it's based on me, the old covenant, <laughs> but if I make a deal with God, if I receive a covenant and agreement with God and it's based on him and what he's done, that's very good news. You should be absolutely secure in your salvation here today, in your position in God's family. You should be absolutely 100% secure in that today if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Because why? Because the new covenant's based on what he did. It's not based on what you do. All you do is receive it. The only thing that you bring to the table in this covenant is sin. God does the rest. He cleanses you. He washes you. He adopts you into his family. He forgives your sin. He gives you new life goes on to say in our passage there, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is for the remission of sins. I like that there where it's shed for many, not just for some, any who will come in faith. Now, notice that there too, that this is for the remission of sins. This is the purpose of Christ going to the cross is for the remission of sins. And sometimes church people wonder, the church today wonders, what is Jesus all about? Did he just come to give us to do some, you know, some cool thing on Sunday? Was he just a good teacher? I noticed a lot of guys dress like him and look like him now. They've got the beard and the long hair and stuff. Did he come just to show us how to look? I'm being silly. Jesus came and he died for the remission of sins. Now, listen, 
it's good for us to remember the gospel, the true gospel. Now, friends, it's, it's weird. We live in a day and age where pastors, denominations, and many Christians are embarrassed about things like sin and death and hell. They're embarrassed to tell people about these things. They feel like, you know, we need to shelter these things. We just need to boost people's self-esteem or whatever it is we need to do, but we don't need to tell them about these things. We don't need to tell them that if they reject Christ, that they're going to hell. We don't, we don't want to say that anymore as the church. We're, we're embarrassed of the fire and brimstone preacher that used to sit there and say, repent, and now we're into this whole other cool version of Christianity where nobody talks about these things. We're embarrassed. But I would remind you to look at this carefully, that Christ died for the remission of sins, for your sin, for my sin. This is what Christ going to the cross is all about. It's because of sin. Your sin, my sin, is a direct offense to God and it equals, it deserves the death penalty according to God, eternal death in hell. We're talking of about a pit where people keep falling and there is no bottom, eternal darkness, eternal separation from God and from anything good, surrounded and sealed in self-centered sin for eternity, burning, emptiness for eternity. This is where your loved ones are going without Christ. This is where your kids are going without Christ. This is where your friends are going without Christ. Jesus' death on the cross was incredibly valuable because it's the one thing that will save people from going to an eternity of death and separation from God. He says this is for the remission of sins. There are people that identify with, as a Christian today that don't want to think about these things, but I'll tell you what, Christ talked about them all the time. He says, I'm not going to drink this with you again until... I'm in my father's kingdom. He's referring to the millennial kingdom. He'll come back and set it up. And when they had sung a hymn, they go out to the Mount of Olives. <sighs> Don't you love that in verse 30? Have you ever stopped at verse 30 and looked at that and thought, I so wonder what Jesus' voice sounded like singing a song right there. You ever wondered that? Good news. If you're in Christ here today, you're going to know one day. Maybe soon. So this passage points us directly to Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb, sacrificed once for all for the sins of the world. As you can see, such a beautiful passage where we learn the true meaning of communion. I hope you understand that we ought to live every day remembering Christ every day. Because God has sent Jesus Christ to save you and me from an eternity in hell by dying for our sins. We ought to live our lives in humble remembrance of him. As we approach the Lord's table today, I would just invite you to take advantage of this opportunity to sit there and be quiet with the Lord. Keep the distractions, please, to a minimum. Sit there and be quiet with the Lord, you and him. And ask him just to deal with the things in your heart. If there's nothing to be dealt with in your heart, take this wonderful time just to praise him and to give him the gratitude that he deserves for his sacrifice that he made for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here today, God, and we thank you that you've blessed us richly. Thank you, Lord, that you did come and you died for the remission of sins, for my sin. I love you, Jesus, and I thank you. We love you here today as we make our way to your table. Lord, may we approach this with that same
attitude of the disciples, Lord, make us weep for the things that you weep for. Make us exceedingly sorrowful over sin, Lord. We've grown cold. May we have enough sense, Lord, to scan and to ask you to scan us, saying, is it I? Am I the one that needs to be dealt with here today? Thank you for this wonderful gift of love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.